ahead and have a seat. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning. Are you smiling? Are you in a good mood? Okay, I'll take care of that. Uh, why don't you turn around, uh, just look at somebody and say smile. Just do that. It, it, yeah. Don't, don't be all, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, there you go. So that helps. Good morning. I'm Pastor Kim. I'm the director of the residency program here, and I get to uh, preach today and be with you for the next few minutes as we go through and continue our series in the book of Acts. So if you have a Bible, you want to open it to Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read uh, just six verses there in a message called... Uh, the church begins. So I want to welcome you, those who are watching online, and welcome you here at the uh, Thornton Campus of Crossroads Church. Really, really good to be with you today. We are in this series looking at what, uh, what, what it means to have the whole movement of Christianity begin. Acts is uh, being broken up into little sections, and we're in season one through July, almost through July, and then we'll pick it up again in the fall in season two. Pastor James started a few weeks ago. Uh, three weeks ago, a really great start. What a great preacher. And then Rodney Perry, my friend from the region, I get to work with him two weeks ago. And then last week, our first graduated resident, Alex Stadler, uh, preached. And man, a kid can deliver it. And now today we'll be voting on him for being the new lead pastor at Crossroads Fort Lupton. And so, so good. Really, really inspiring so far. This week, we're going to look at uh, how the church began, this thing we call church. What is it? How did it begin? What's it for? What's it supposed to be? Do you ever wonder that? Have you ever wondered that? Think about this question. If you get a question from somebody who honestly doesn't know, what would you tell them if they said, what is this thing that church is about? What is, why do you go there? What's the point of it? And actually, that question gets asked a lot these days. I get it a lot in my little world as I... Uh, as I move and, and hang with people, that, that question of what's the point of, even from people who are, have been part of the church, they're wondering, some of them, what's the point of this gathering we call the church? What's it supposed to be doing? And, and you are here, uh, so are those of you that are watching online. Why? What, what's it doing for you? What's the point of us being here? Acts is a book in the Bible that details the eyewitness account of what happened after Jesus died, got buried, rose from the dead, and ascended back into heaven. And it's the story of how Jesus' followers organized themselves and lived out his mission. So that's what the book of Acts, it's a very important book because the story of Jesus didn't end with Jesus' ascension. It goes on, it goes on, and it includes us. First the disciples, then the first believers, and all the way through the centuries to us, it ultimately comes now into existence, this thing of the church, the mission of Jesus through us. Well, what does that, what does that look like? It's a very crucial and important concept and truth. At the point we're at in the narrative now, lots of people, young and old, are becoming followers of Jesus. Peter's preaching mainly, and thousands of people are giving their lives to Jesus as the truth of Jesus is being spread in the first century. They're putting their faith in him. We're at the place of the story in the story where we get a description about how all these people's lives then instantly and then progressively through their life changed and they became disciples of Jesus. We get a good snapshot of where the church began with what marching orders and what it's supposed to look like through the centuries even to today. How these Christians, as they became known, started to relate to each other, but more importantly, how they started to relate to 
the message of Jesus and to the culture around them. So it's right here in these little six, uh, six little verses in chapter 2, starting at verse 42, Acts 2, 42. And they, the people who were believers, new believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all, things, uh, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their, in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord was added, added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. That's a great passage, and it uh, has something to say to us, five things in particular. Five things this uh, passage talks about, the, the launch, the beginning, the, in, the inception of this uh, thing we call the church. Five realities. The people who grabbed hold of the truth of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, they built their lives on these five things. They centered them on these five things. These new believers, how this whole thing we call the church began, was built on these five realities. They were believing Jesus. That's what it means when the scripture says those were added to their number who were being saved. Being saved just means you put your faith in Jesus. You're same, saved from your destiny without him. A destiny without him is hell, honestly. No matter who you are, how inferior you may feel or how superior you may feel, if you want a real and right relationship with God, your creator, it starts by believing in Jesus, by putting real faith in Jesus, the weight of your trust over on Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit comes into your life, what Alex talked about last week, and it changes us. That's what happens in Acts chapter 2, and it should be happening today. The same thing should be happening today, these five things. We should be taking hold of these five things as a church of Jesus because nowhere between the first century and today was it changed. It just got bigger and bolder. These five things, here they are. Teaching, community, social compassion, worship, and influence. All right, now I'm going to go through these five things rather quickly so I can get to my, my ultimate point in uh, my message today, and it will be a challenge, actually. So the first thing they devoted themselves to was teaching. Notice it says the people devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, devoted. They were devoted to learning truth about God and truth of God. They were devoted. Now, that's unusual in our day and age because we live in a time where, and this actually stuns me sometimes, many people, even Believers will acquiesce to the idea that, well, is there really any objective truth? I mean, there is truth, but it's by and large subjective. You believe what is true for you, I believe what is true for me. Everyone has their own truth to live by, but it's not universal. There's no absolute truth that applies to everyone. That's the common position that I run into in all the time with people I talk to. Maybe you do too. And I'd love it if I could spend a, a, a long time on this one point because there's a lot to say about it, but I don't have time. All I can say is this. The people who made up the first church ever, we just read, the way the Bible describes it, devoted themselves 
to the teaching of a truth that proclaimed to be absolute, objective truth that applies to everyone everywhere. Truth that ultimately is captured in these 66 books. Truth about God and truth of God. The, the truth that there is a God, that he is holy, that he is good, that he is loving, and that he has a plan for you, the whole world, for each of us, and he put it in writing. They were devoted to the teaching of that, the building of their lives around it, the first point. Number two, community. They were devoted to community. It says they had everything in common. They shared what they had with each other. At the core of this sharing what they had with each other was this dramatic change of heart, which is what it takes if we're going to even lean into this reality. A dramatic change of heart that came because Jesus became their number one, their first in life. They centered their lives around Jesus. Therefore, they began to see what they owned as coming from God to, for them to manage and possess for a short time and do something that would please him with their personal wealth and pleasure and collection. God didn't give it to them so that they would have personal wealth and pleasure and collection and accumulation of stuff, but as something that they then, as they met Jesus, would use to bless and share and influence others with. This isn't just about food, even though the text talks about food. We all love to eat and drink together. We do that really well. It says they broke bread together, which also includes communion, which we'll be part of in a moment. They prayed together, and they shared things together. But then verse 44 says, all believers were together, and they had everything in common. And this is so hard for most of us as Americans to think about, to point to the point for the for most of us, this part is absolutely uh, counterintuitive, opposed to what we typically think of our stuff. Because we, especially as Americans and in other parts of the world too, we are so individualistic and unaccountable to anyone but ourselves. We're just ground in that reality. The idea of making what I have available to someone else just is absurd. This is my stuff. I earned it. I bank it. I spend it. I live in it. I drive it. This is mine. We collect and accumulate our possessions and buy our stuff. It's mine. It's not yours. That's, all of us live in that culture. You can look at my stuff. You can look at my house and my yard and my bike. But remember, it's mine. It's not yours. But then along comes Jesus in the first century and every century since then, even today in 2022, the same Jesus who identified himself as one who came to serve and give his life for us. And when Jesus started to gather believers in him to be the church, which is not a building or a location, it's a body, it's an organic living thing made up of people. That's what the churches, when they started to let Jesus then be the center of their lives and let the Holy Spirit infuse them and fill them and empower, empower them and motivate them, they started to understand that what they have, they understood their possessions differently. They understood that what they have and what they've been given, what they owned, all actually comes from God for them to use for his good and uh, the good, for God, others' good and God's glory. And it really all belongs to him. He's the one that gave them the breath, the ability, the skill, the mind to earn, to get what they have anyway. It all belongs to him. And they started to see this life shift that this belongs to me for others' good, not just for my good. I can enjoy it, certainly, but it's not just for me. 
It's for others as well in the glory of God. Same with us today. Number three, social concern. Verse 45 says they were unbelievably generous to anyone who had a need to the point where they sold some of their stuff to be generous to others. They saw themselves as people who could change other people's lives and impact them, particularly those who had less than them, to serve them, help them extraordinarily because of their compassion and generosity. Generosity and compassion that often required sacrifice on their, on their behalf. They sacrificed what they had uh, or could have to help others and each other. They were people who knew God looked on them with compassion and grace and forgiveness and blesses them. How could they do any less for people around them? They knew they had to do the same for others. Number four, they worshiped. Worship, that's the fourth thing, this reality that first church was built on, worship. Verse 47 says they praised God. They gave him praise and thanks and attention. Is anyone here an Avalanche fan? Yeah, we're all hoping they kill it tonight, right? Let's put this thing to rest. Let's get it done. Even on Tampa's soil um, or ice, which hardly can be ice in Florida. I don't know how they have ice in Florida, but that's another story. It's been fun to get together and praise the Avs, hasn't it? Give them attention, wear their jerseys, wear their hats, and gather with others around the game to cheer and high-five each other and give them some glory. It's been a lot of fun. It's pro- that's probably what it means when it says they met together in the temple courts and praised God. They didn't come and soberly sit and just become a consumer of something. They actively participated with each other, uh, praising God. This first church was committed to worshiping together. Together. And it's fine if you worship God, and you should, all by yourself, solo, in his creation, it's a great way to express your love and your praise and, and tell God how good he is. But the text is describing here a regular gathering of believers together worshiping God. Elsewhere in the Bible, it says, don't turn your back on getting together for regular times of worship. Don't do that. And then number five is they had influence. They had influence. The end of verse 47 says they were having favor with all the people. The church had influence on others by their devotion and compassion and generosity. It was making a difference in the lives of other people. Their generosity and compassion had influence on the lives of other people, and ultimately they were having favor with all the people. They let the rule and the authority of Jesus become first in their life. It became their first identity. It be, do you hear that? It became their first identity. It's supposed to today, too. And it's what they lived by, and the Holy Spirit empowered them to move out into the lives of neighbors and businesses and social institutions. They were Christians first, and then they were Jews and Gentiles. Before Jesus, they were Jews and Gentiles hearing about Jesus. Once they put their faith in Jesus, they became Christians who were Jews and are Jews and Gentiles. They're Christians who are bankers and bakers and barbers, you see. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian first, and you're white second. You're a Christian first, and you're black second. You're a Christian first, and you're wealthy or you're poor second. You're first a Christian and then a business person. You're a Christian first and then a piano teacher. You're a Christian first and then a husband or a clerk, 
or a barista or a son or a mechanic or a bank president. And because this was true of them, they had influence and made a difference by their generosity and grace and service in the lives of others because they were first identifying as Christians, followers of Jesus. They found favor with all the people. Not that, not that everyone loved or honored them, just like us. Now, that's never going to be the case. We will always have people who hate us, dishonor us, or don't like our devotion to Jesus. That's always going to be true. The point is it didn't stop them, and it doesn't stop us from what? Being belligerent in our faith? No. Serving and giving and being generous. Five things the church of Jesus began with and devoted themselves to teaching, community, social compassion, worship, and influence. And because of it, people were putting their faith in Jesus. And the Bible says God was adding to their numbers daily those who were being saved, those who were coming to faith in Jesus. All right. Now, this text always stirs me with a burden I have carried my whole life since I met Jesus. And I live with it every single day. And the older I get, the heavier the burden gets. A burden that really weighs on me, and I want to share it with you so it will weigh on you. And I'll share my burden with this declaration. I'm going to make a declaration. Here's my declaration. If this world is ever going to be different, this earth, if it's ever going to be different, with less hate, less division, fewer mass shootings, more peace, more civility, less poverty, less homelessness, less addiction. If our communities and our neighborhoods and our cities and our states and our continents are ever going to be places of hope and peace and love, if our homes are going to be places of refuge and encouragement and compassion, that ultimately spills over to the neighbors. If this world, our world, has any hope of being different in these ways and finding hope and salvation in Jesus, it will only be because the church, people who say they believe in and follow Jesus, get off there and start taking the truth of Jesus seriously. Being people every one of us, because that's what the church is. Being people who are for others, willingly and lovingly giving our lives away by living in the power of the Holy Spirit coursing through us, showing and sharing Jesus by how we live our lives and what we do with what we have. That's how the church began. That's how it's to be today. Nothing in history of the church changed from the beginning all through the centuries to today. It's still the same. Teaching, community, social compassion, worship, influence. Do you know that today on planet Earth there are roughly 2.5 billion people who call themselves followers of Jesus? 2.5 billion people. 2.5 billion Christians. Out of 8 billion people that live on planet Earth now, that's roughly one in every 3.2 people. So if you're in a group of four, 
One of you is a Christian, three are probably not. That's a pretty good odd because you, my guess is you know 3.2 other people. My guess is you have relationship with 3.2 other people who you should show up in their lives in some tangible way as a follower of Jesus and love them. Be generous to them. Share Jesus with them first by showing them and then when the opportunity comes telling them out of the compassion that you've been shown. What would happen in this world? What would happen even in your little part of it? Start at your home, maybe your neighbors. What would happen if we, even in our small sector, if you took your faith in Jesus, your love for him seriously, absolutely seriously, like we were, like we were the first century church? What would happen, church? I know what would happen because I see it happening. Lives would be changed and people would be influenced by the truth and the power of Jesus because we're living it out. I see it happening. I see it happening every time Danielle gives free haircuts as a hairstylist on the first Saturday of the month and has conversation with people she's doing free haircuts for, usually people in uh, less advantageous positions than she is. I see it when I see retired lawyer Roger, a friend of mine, volunteer in a nonprofit bike shop to help people get on their only source of transportation they have and probably can afford. Roger's a retired lawyer. I'm a retired pastor, so I'm going to talk to you just for about 20 seconds if you're retired. That is not the time for you to retire out of serving others. It's your time to make that exponentially valuable to others. Why? Because you probably have a resource. I know you have time because you tell me you fish and you golf and you go on vacations. Well, good for you. How pleased is God with that? Doesn't mean you don't do it. If you're retired, you're in a position now where you have the most knowledge and experience, and experience can often masquerade as wisdom in the life of someone younger. And don't wait for them to come to you. You go to them and say, how's it going? Look for ways God would open the door. Young people want it. They hunger for it. Believe me, I'm living in that world. They hunger for it. They want it. But they're probably not going to make the first step toward you. You didn't when you were young. They're not going to. It's your job to go there. Retired people. It's, <laughs> it's happening because Brian decided to open and run a, a food bank that now serves hundreds of people every week. It happens, life is changed because of Jesus when Scott started Alternatives for Youth, a program that gives guidance to young people who have been offenders and the court ordered them into his program, but they don't just take the kid, they take the families and Scott's helping them as a Christian. It happens when teenager Julie put a reminder on her phone every morning that she is to speak life to someone, to the people around her. It happens when Brad uses his guitar skill to sit at the bedside of someone who's sick and bring merciful, hopeful music to them. It happened when Connie listened to God when she was complaining to him about the state of homelessness in our city. She was so discontent that she said to God, you ought to do something. And God said to her, 
you do something. And she started a ministry that to this very day has served thousands of people into independent living. And I could go on and on and on. These are normal people who follow Jesus, and they all have influence in the lives of others who matter to God. Influence that makes a difference that can change a life or many lives. And those are just eight examples. There are more, lots more, dozens more, lots of believers I know are taking their faith seriously and actively and actually tangibly living it out, sacrificing, giving, sharing, But 20% of the 100% is not enough. That's not God's plan. It's 100% of us. It's not enough that 20% do it. My burden is, because I belong to this church body, why aren't all of us doing that at some measurable, in some measurable way? Why aren't we doing that? What would happen if all 3,000 of us who call this church our home asked God what we could be doing, what we could do and be what he's calling us to be, what would happen to this world as believers of Jesus who actually took that part of our calling, Christian first, and took it seriously no matter our age or position in life? What if all of us simply took those five things and devoted our lives and centered them around them like the first church, lived them out? What would happen? I pray to God that someday we would find out. I honestly believe this that there is no way this world is ever going to be different. Things will only continue to get darker and more divided and more desperate unless, unless we live out the purpose God put in every one of us when we became a believer in Jesus and an individual part of his body, the church. That's his plan for this world that we are his people, living and breathing, living witnesses of what God has done for us on behalf of others, living, giving our lives away. Teaching, community, social compassion, worship, influence. But, but it's not happening, is it? When I talk about this to Christians one-on-one because it's a burden I've carried and I go around speaking in various places now since my retirement and whenever I share this with groups of people like this I sometimes get this blank stare back at me like I'm speaking a foreign language and I am speaking a foreign language this is very foreign to our culture this is very foreign to us and we're all products of our culture it is like a foreign language you tilt your heads and we all go really? I'm supposed to do that with my stuff? That's not what everyone around me is doing. No, it's not. That's what's going to make you stand out as a follower of Jesus. I know this is countercultural. It goes against almost everything we see see and hear in our world today. Okay, I'm going to land this because if I don't, I'll get all worked up. (laughs) Um, I'm going to ask you to do something for me, and it's going to be weird for one second, and it's not going to get weirder. Okay? Would you just open your hands and look at them? Okay, everybody look at them. Don't give me this. I'm not going to look at my hands. Why? Just look at your hands. Look at your hands. What's in there? What's in your hands? What are you holding? All right, look at me. Remember Moses? There's a great story. When God told Moses he was going to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt into freedom and, and in the promised land, uh, what did Moses do? He, 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 he kind of refused that. He, he rejected that notion. He, he gave excuses for why he wasn't the guy. You know, I'm not the right guy. I, I have a stuttering. I have a speech impediment. I, I'm not the guy. Pick someone else. 
And you know what the, the story says? God said, Moses, what's in your hand? And what was in his hand? It was a shepherd's staff, right? He was a shepherd. It was a shepherd's staff. And Moses said, a staff? And God said, throw it down. All right, threw it down. As soon as Moses threw it down, what, what did it become? A snake. You should read this story. <laughs> a snake. Now, we all love snakes, right? No, not since Adam and Eve. So the snake is on the ground, and it was his staff, and God said, now pick it up. <laughs> and Moses is going, are you serious right now? You want me to pick up that snake? Pick it up, Moses. All right, so he picked up the snake, and what happened? It turned immediately back into a staff. Don't let this point get lost on you. That whole story is in the Bible because God was showing Moses and us that if he'd simply use what's in his hand, God would empower and equip him. So what's in your hand? Time? Money? Influence? Skill? Ability? Compassion? Prayer? Ambition? Burning passion? Resource? What's in your hand? A hammer? A truck? A computer? A guitar? A recipe? A building? A lawnmower? A basketball? Maybe all you have is a pen. I have a friend who regularly corresponds and initiated correspondence with three other men who are all serving lengthy time in prison in this state. One is even a double murderer. And this friend of mine has told these men that he will write to them every time they send him a letter back until he dies. He's made that commitment in writing. Until I cannot possibly write you, I will write you. And each of them have written back saying, everyone's forgotten about me but you. And he can share Jesus with them. Because what he's motivated by is when Jesus is condemning those who said they were Christian but didn't do anything for anybody else, when Jesus said, you didn't even come and visit me when I was in prison. And that has mo motivated him. How hard is that? I have paper, I have envelopes, I have stamps. Do you? I have a phone, I can make a contact. What's in your hand? What has God given you that he's not given me probably? What has God given you to use for the good of others and for his glory to be who he's called you to be, Christian? How is this world going to be different? How are you going to be different? How are you ever going to make your final report to God when you stand before him and he asks you what you did with what he gave you? How are you going to do that unless you and I get off the mark and courageously, with humble boldness, live out our faith in a way that makes a difference right where we are for others? How? That's how the church started. I cannot read that any other way. It's how it began. And that's how it needs to be today, all of us. We are the church until Jesus comes back. That's God's plan A. And there is no what? Plan B. So I'm going to close with this. You know what motivates me to live my life differently as a Christian? 
You know what motivates my relationship with Jesus? It's that, that piece of glass I look into every morning. It's the mirror. I go into my bathroom and I brush my teeth and I comb my wavy hair. <laughs> and I look in the mirror and I see a guy staring back at me that doesn't deserve one microgram of the forgiveness and grace that God extends to me every day and I don't deserve any of it. Just because he loves me and has made a purpose for my life known to me. And honestly, that wrecks me. It melts me and it motivates me. Just like this, this bread and this cup, you took it, right? You have it in your hands. You have it in that little hermetically sealed unit. You pull that top part off. You take that little piece of unleavened bread out of there. Jesus said, this is my body that's broken so I could become famous. I'm giving it so I could become world known. No. This is my body given for you. Put your name there. Remember me each time you eat of it. Why don't you? Eat it and remember. Then Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the new, this represents the new covenant. My blood, which is spilled for you, for you, for you. Remember me each time you drink of it. So that's why we do this every weekend here. And we join billions of Christians around the world who take this. Don't let it, don't let it be a trite exercise for you. Understand, Jesus told us this so that we would be who he called us to be. So we take and drink, we remember, and we believe. God, Thank you for loving us so much that you'd give us a reason for being here. That you'd give us a purpose for who we are and what we're doing with our lives. That it's so much more than just how comfortable we are. In fact, I would say forgive us, forgive me for loving my comfort more than I love my neighbor. I pray that you will give us as the church of Jesus, as people who have put their faith in Jesus, clarity and boldness to be the church in our world, for the good of others, and for your glory. And I pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.